Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to True Blue, True Crime. We're on to episode four now. My name's Sean, I'm your host, and with me, as per usual, my excellent co-host, Chloe. How are you? Hi, good. Good. Good to be back for another week. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You're not so sure about that. (laughs) The freestyle, um, we're not planned in this part and it's stressful. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> it is. And I think it makes it more stressful that we're doing back to back serial killers this week. Yeah. It's, uh, been kinda kinda heavy on the on the rape and murder. So <laughs> yeah. we have some great comedy suggestions for after if anyone needs it. Yeah, absolutely. Before we get into what we're covering for this week, a couple of quick notes about the show. So True Blue, True Crime is a weekly podcast covering Australian criminal cases. We release additional exclusive content to our Patreon supporters on a weekly basis. And if you'd like to support the show, head on over to our Patreon page. The link will be in the show notes on whatever app you are listening to. Uh, Patreon is easy. You can use your Facebook profile to sign up and support the show with a simple click, like buying something off eBay with your PayPal account. For $2 a month, you'll get exclusive Patreon content, access to behind-the-scenes material, Q&As, blooper reels. We did one last week for the Leonard Fraser episode, which is pretty hilarious because we made a lot of mistakes. <laughs> uh, and we'll also do 10% off in our merch store for our patrons when we get that up and running. Everyone who gets behind us on Patreon is paying for the content we produce, so it's only fitting we can show you guys some extra love, and we do that weekly through Patreon at the moment. We're very lucky to have some new supporters this week, Chloe. Welcome and thank you to Grant Vivian, Lisa Svensson, Luke Williams, Michelle Hart, John Putman, Danielle Sparks, Brianna Sparks, and Nicole Putman. Yeah, thanks very much, everyone. We really appreciate the support. We understand that not everyone is able to get behind us on that front. That's fine. We really appreciate you listening to the regular episodes as well. You can support the show by telling your friends and work colleagues. You can join our Facebook discussion group and share the podcast on social media. Follow us on Instagram as well. And if you do like the show, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes or whatever app you use. Um, And please write a review. We really appreciate that and it really helps us out. Um, We'll read out the five-star reviews at the end of the episode, the ones that we get on iTunes. 
So, Chloe, in this week's episode, we're talking about another serial killer. As we said, back-to-back serial killers, having covered Leonard Fraser last week. And while the guy we're discussing today shares many similar traits with Fraser, namely an utter contempt for women, a heinous MO, and three decades of brutal criminality, he's also a stark contrast, particularly in outward appearance. If Fraser, the Popeye-armed, barefoot-prowling, footy-short-wearing labourer was an outright wolf, then the guy we're talking about today is that same wolf, but in sheep's clothing. He could be the man next door, the tradie across the street, the bus driver, or your local mechanic. And I think that's what makes his tale and that of his victims all the more scary. Nineteenth of April, nineteen ninety-nine. Nicole Patterson was meeting a man named Malcolm at her home office in Harper Street, Northcote, an inner northern suburb of Melbourne, around nine a.m. She worked at the Ardoc Centre at the time, an organisation that helps homeless and disadvantaged young people, and she also assisted at the Australian Drug Foundation. But this appointment was one of the first steps she'd taken towards establishing her own practice, one where she could do what she loved, help those who needed it, those who couldn't sort it out, whatever the problem was, on their own. In recent times, she'd advertised in the local Northcote Leader newspaper, her first foray into marketing her own services, something she'd offer from home, at least to begin with. She specified the services of counselling people with relationship and sexuality problems. The advertisement also made clear that strict confidentiality would be maintained. So she set up for her appointment at the innocent hour of 9am on a Monday morning and waited for Malcolm to arrive. Neighbours would later tell they'd heard screaming not long after this time, but thought nothing of it. Perhaps it was a domestic dispute. Nicole's boyfriend would even try calling her later in the day, but she didn't answer. Later that evening, a friend of Nicole's visited her house. The pair were heading out to a dinner engagement that evening. Music was playing inside and the door was unlocked, so her friend entered the house, only to find the lifeless body of Nicole Patterson on the floor, severely mutilated. Patterson died from 27 stab wounds to her chest and back. She was naked from the waist down, her underwear pulled down around her ankles and her skirt flung in a bedroom nearby. Pieces of yellow electrical tape were stuck to her body and both of her breasts had been cut off. The police were called to investigate and quickly discovered a phone number for someone named Malcolm, Nicole Patterson's 9am appointment that morning. But that number wasn't for anyone named Malcolm it led the police to an Indian University student named Harry. They spoke with Harry and learned he'd been offered labouring work by a man in recent times, and he had a solid alibi himself. Police tracked down this man who offered him the work at the Excelsior Hotel in Thomastown, a couple of days later on April the 22nd, 1999. This man was a white, middle-aged, soft and paunchy-looking man, and he had scratches on his face and hands, just like someone would have from a recent altercation. He said they were from working on a lathe at home, but it turned out he didn't own a lathe, so he changed his story, 
It was from some protruding wood while working in the shed at home. The police arrested the man and later a search of his home revealed a blood-stained green-grey jacket, yellow electrical tape, a balaclava or ski mask, newspaper clippings detailing Nicole Patterson's murder and also a paper containing her advertisement. The police had their man. That man was Peter Norris Dupas. Peter Norris Dupas was born the 6th of July 1953 in Sydney, New South Wales. Dupas was the youngest of three children, born into what has been described as a fairly normal family. His family moved to Melbourne while he was still a toddler. They lived in the Frankston and Mount Waverley areas. He had two siblings who were considerably older, so his elderly parents treated him much like an only child. He was a spoiled and unremarkable child who turned into a lonely teenager, shy to the point of timidity and self-conscious of his ballooning weight. He was a poor student was bullied at school and he got given the nickname Pugsley Clow, which I'm guessing was after Pugsley from the Adams family. When I thought of that, I thought of the movie from around when we were a kid with had Christina Ricci in it, you know that one? Yeah. Raul Julia. Uh, but he, I didn't think he really looked like that kid, but when I looked up the picture of Pugsley of the original show, he looked very much like that Pugsley. In psychiatric sessions later in life, Dupas said his mother was overprotective and his father was a perfectionist who made him feel inadequate. But it's worth noting that prior to him, there was no other notable criminal history in the Dupas family. He attended Waverley High where he repeated Form 1, which is what we'd call Year 7 now, made it to Form 5, Year 11, before leaving to begin a trade apprenticeship as a fitter and turner at General Electric in Notting Hill. I believe he did go back to study at some point later in life, though, and obtained his HSC, or what we'd call VCE now. On October 3rd, 1968, he's arrested for stabbing a woman in Mount Waverley, given 18 months probation and sent to a psychiatric hospital for examination. Dupas was at the age of 15 when he went to the house of a 27-year-old female neighbour. She had a five-week-old baby at the time. She answered a knock at her back door. It was Dupas, still in his Waverley High School uniform, and he asked if he could borrow a small knife to peel some vegetables. Now, the lady said, quote, I remarked to him about peeling the potatoes for his mother and what a good boy he was. But then... Dupas attacked, lunging at her stomach, slashing her fingers, neck and face. The lady later remarked, He knocked me down onto the floor and he fell on top of me. He kept on stabbing me with the knife and I kept trying to ward him off. I felt the knife cut into my hands, mainly my right hand, my face and my neck. I was holding onto the knife at one stage, trying to break the blade. I was lying on my back as he was sitting on top of me. He said, It's too late. I can't stop now, they'll lock me up. Dupas then banged her head on the floor and covered her nose and mouth with his hand before he suddenly stopped the attack and broke down in tears. He later told the police he didn't know why he attacked the woman, because he wouldn't hurt anyone. Dupas said, quote, I can remember having the knife in my hand, I must have been trying to kill her or something. So this is really interesting here, Chloe. This is the first real documented sign of him being like a full 
flip of the switch psychopath, just completely disconnects with reality, bang, like a compulsion, he lunges, stabs, slices, and later he just isn't sure why. But he's fully aware of it at the time because he says something to her along the lines of, yeah, I can't stop now, they'll lock me up, so he knows what he's doing. He was taken to the Rundle Hospital for psychiatric assessment following this. The conclusion was that he caught an emotional conflict between the need to conform to the expectations of his parents and the unconscious urges to express his aggression and developing masculinity. This makes me so uncomfortable. It seems like an outdated diagnosis as well. Mm. He, I'm sure this wouldn't have happened today, but he was put on probation for 18 months and given psychiatric treatment. Dupas, believe it or not, actually had ambitions on joining the police force but was denied entry for being one centimetre, half an inch too short, something that was common back in the day, but police, along with most other government departments, are far more inclusive nowadays. We'll just play a quick clip now, Chloe, of a couple of neighbours talking about when Dupas was released and sent back home much quicker than what they all anticipated. The first lady is a nearby neighbour. The second is actually the voice of the lady that he attacked. I spoke to Merle on the phone and she said, his mother, and she said, oh, Carol, she said, it was just a brainstorm that Pete had. Just a brainstorm, she said. And I thought, well, that's very strange, you know. Yeah, it was unbelievable that he was um, back home so quickly. And I said to the police... Why is this so? I mean, how, how do we know what he's going to do next? And they said, we don't. We don't know. In October 1969, a mortuary located at the Austin Hospital was broken into. The bodies of two elderly women were mutilated using a pathologist's knife. One body contained a strange wound inflicted with a knife to the area of the thigh. Police believe that Dupas was involved in the break-ins as the wounds inflicted matched that of a later murder victim, Nicole Patterson, who we spoke about in the intro, Chloe. March the 10th, 1972, Dupas is caught peeping at a woman through the bathroom window of her home in Oakley. Now, this woman's husband caught Dupas. He actually chased him down on foot. And he probably gave the little prick a good clip around the ears too. But Dupas was fined just $50 for this, which sounds like, not much, considering it's 1972. It still doesn't sound like much. But believe it or not, I think that would be around about 500 bucks in today's money. Still not much. No, not much. Um, on November 5th, 1973, he rapes a woman at Knife Point and threatens her baby in the suburb of Mitcham. Dupas pretends his car was broken down out front of this lady's home. The woman went in to fetch a screwdriver to help him mend whatever was wrong and while she was looking for the item, he entered her home and ambushed her when she returned. He tied her up with a cord and threatened to hurt her baby when she resisted. Understandably, she stopped resisting at that point. He's arrested for this rape in a couple of weeks' time and police discover he tried the same ruse with another two women Both occasions he left without assaulting the women, but he stole some cash off one and was presumably deterred at the other when the woman mentioned her husband would be home shortly. But before his arrest, he keeps up his shitburger criminal behaviour, stealing $7 from the purse of a woman in Endeavour Hills, then frightening a 12-year-old girl by repeatedly staring and smiling at her. Now, my understanding is this happened while driving 
uh, vehicle, Dupas was driving alongside this car and intently staring at this young girl and her father who was driving the car. He noticed this and he filed a complaint against Dupas. Finally, on November the 30th, 1973, Dupas is arrested and charged with the November 5 rape, housebreaking with intent and housebreaking and stealing. Now, this is where it gets interesting from a legal standpoint, Chloe. It's something I don't fully understand, to be honest. So he's granted bail for the rape, but then he's sent to Mont Park Psychiatric Hospital. I'm guessing as kind of a condition of bail, perhaps, was he attended this facility. But the problem was, it seemed like he was free to come and go from this place as he pleased. It's a bit confusing and it doesn't stop there. He gets arrested again during this time while out and about from Mont Park after a series of incidents on the Rosebud foreshore. At least three times he entered shower blocks and watched girls showering before being caught in a police stakeout. And what does he get for this? Keeping in mind this is a guy who is already violently offended, stabbed and slashed a woman for which he got probation and psychiatric treatment and also brutally raped a woman at knife point, for which he's been arrested and currently on bail for. What does he get? Fined $140 for loitering with intent and offensive behaviour. So somehow amongst all of the escalating, sickening behaviour, he completes his apprenticeship and in 1974, at the ripe old age of 21, it was around this time he went to jail for his first rape. During his incarceration, prison psychiatrist Dr. Alan Bartholomew noted Dupas was in constant denial of his criminal activity, noting at the time, I am reasonably certain that this youth has a serious psychosexual problem, that he is using the technique of denial as a coping device, and that he is to be seen as potentially dangerous. The denial technique makes for huge difficulty in treatment, It was also said that psychiatrists couldn't find any specific disorder with Dupas. So 1979, September 4, he's released from jail and right away he gets busy while on parole, beginning what can only be described as a 10-day sadistic spree where he, by his own admission, got an urge each time that just came over him. He couldn't help it. Donning his signature balaclava, he rapes a woman while threatening her with a knife at Frankston. His first victim was raped in a public toilet block in Frankston and the other three escaped, but one, an elderly woman, was stabbed during a struggle as Dupas tried to assault her. She told police after Dupas fled, I started to get to my feet and then realised there was blood pouring from the left side of my chest and I realised I'd been stabbed. So he gets picked up pretty quickly after this, but his reign of hatred towards women comes to a temporary halt. He is sentenced to six years with a minimum of five for the Frankston offences. Five years on, on February 27th, 1985, Dupas is released from jail. Now, we have a really interesting point here. Going back a couple of weeks to February 6th to 14th, Dupas was given pre-release from jail. This doesn't become apparent until later on in our timeline, many years later actually, but it is important to note because on February 13th, the day before his pre-release ended, a woman named Helen McMahon is murdered while sunbathing on the beach at Rye. So on this day in February 1985, Chloe, 48-year-old mother of four Helen McMahon was sunbathing semi-naked at Rye Back Beach near Dunder Street 
Now, Ryback Beach isn't a nudist beach, but back then in the 80s, there were probably some secluded spots for sunbakers to go and even out the tan away from prying eyes. Unfortunately, it wasn't secluded enough. Some piece of shit found her and they murdered her. Her body was found badly beaten. The right side of her head was bashed in. A blood-soaked beach towel was draped across her. From reports I could see, the cause of death was from head injuries. However, there were conflicting reports that also alluded to stab wounds in her upper body. But that's really neither here nor there. This poor woman had been brutalised. Dupas isn't a suspect to begin with, not for a long time, because according to prison records at the time, he wasn't released until a couple of weeks later. But years later, we find out that he was on pre-release. Now, we couldn't quite understand what pre-release is, so maybe someone can write in and educate us on that. I know we at least have one police officer listening, so if you know, <laughs> let us know. Please. Um, but on the surface, it sounds pretty stupid and confusing to me. You're either in jail or you're not, right? But however the system works, at least back in 85, the police investigating Helen McMahon's murder, which was absolutely brutal, don't seem to know about this pre-release program. So Dupas's potential involvement went under the radar. Police now believe that Dupas committed the murder, but they've been unable to tie him to it enough to charge him and take it to trial. But if he did do this, Helen McMahon was Dupas's first murder victim. March the 3rd, 1985, Dupas rapes a 21-year-old woman at the Blair Gowry back beach. He was formally released from jail again on February 27 in 1985, as we said. And four days later, he raped this woman. And he was again caught leaving the scene of the crime. He was found walking along a road away from the beach by two men the victim had asked for help. Again, he could give no explanation to police as to what he'd done and why he'd done it. He said, I was just down there enjoying myself on the beach. I thought I'd just have an easy day lying back. I had no intentions of doing anything. It was stupid, he said. I'm sorry for what happened. Everyone was telling me I'm okay now. I never thought it was going to happen again. All I want to do is live a normal life. When it fell to Judge Leckie to sentence Dupas again on June the 28th, 1985, he described him as walking around with a loaded time bomb in his pocket. Judge Leckie acknowledged before imposing sentence for the Blair Gowry rape that Judge Lazarus attempt to rehabilitate Dupas five years earlier had failed miserably. He said it was clear that the judge has, had accepted what he had been told by the psychiatrist Robert Myers, who said Dupas had not displayed psychotic or psychopathic tendencies. The psychiatrist told Judge Leckie he thought the subsequent rape after Dupas's release was predictable and probably preventable. Quote from Dr. Myers said, but as I said in 1980, I thought it was important that when he was out of custody that he be on the appropriate form of physical treatment. Judge Leckie asked what had gone wrong if he had recommended such treatment when Dupas was last sentenced. Dr. Myers said he was offered and given treatment that didn't include the medication is unfortunately what happened. So Judge Leckie sentenced Dupas to 12 years jail with a minimum of 10 years before parole. Dupas underwent medical treatment to reduce his sex drive. 
1987, while still a prisoner in Castlemaine Jail, Dupas married a nurse 16 years his senior. They married in the jail in 1988 while he was a prisoner. He told parole officers his marriage to a beautiful person would help him stop sexually offending. A Mont Park psychiatrist said later he believes that all of his sex attacks are behind him and he understands himself better now. He's become more assertive. March 1992, Dupas is released from jail. Now, I'm not a mathematician, but that seems like seven years, so I don't know if that was just some sort of prorated long service leave or what, but by 1993, he's trying to get back on the horse, and I say that literally, as he attempts to assault a girl riding a horse in Kyneton. And this young lady was able to get the horse between herself and Dupas, which scared him off. And horses can be a scary animal cloak, aren't they, in the sense that they're flight animals, you know, they're really capable of doing some damage. So they could really end something quickly with a decently timed kick if they were spooked. But unfortunately, Dupas didn't cop a hoof to the head in this case. He escaped unidentified until about a year later, but prosecution for this offence was not authorised by the OPP. By the time of his release in 1992, his new wife was already wondering why she had married him. She found him self-obsessed, a snob, lazy and needy. If she spoke for more than 20 minutes on any subject of interest to her, she said he would interrupt and ask why they were not talking about the two of them. A conversation with him was like talking to a parrot, she said, and that their sex life was very basic, almost non-existent. She said, I would go along with it out of a sense of responsibility, but it got to a stage where I couldn't bear him touching me, she told police later. And we come to November the 5th, 1993. Now, I think this is pretty much coming to the end of his marriage here, Chloe, but Renita Brunton was a 31-year-old mother of one, by all reports, a determined and confident young woman. Unfortunately, she was found dead in the kitchen at the rear of her used clothing shop within the Link Arcade in Sunbury to Melbourne's north. She'd been stabbed 106 times, Chloe, all over her body, and the attack occurred at approximately 1pm. An acquaintance of Renita's, whose advances had been rejected by her, fitted the description of a man who was seen around the store in the days leading up to the murder. Now, this suspect was interviewed and police said, he didn't really seem to care. He was, blah, I think blasé was the word that they used. He showed very little emotion about it, but it seems there was nothing to connect this guy other than his alleged advances, which were rejected, as I said. There was also a man seen arguing with Renita in the store the day before the murder. As always with investigations, police looked at those close to Mrs Brunton first. Her husband of only five months, Robert Brunton, was interviewed and cleared quickly, along with her ex-husband, family members and friends. Her case went cold for many years, but after Dupas had been put behind bars, we would learn that police believed he could have been a suspect, but he apparently had an alibi. Renita's friend Annette Davey said that Renita had also been informally counselling people in the back of her store and she was scheduled to see a man with a violent sexual history on the day of her murder. She also noted Renita wanted this man to understand the damage sexual assault causes survivors and that her description of him matched that of Dupas. Both Dupas and Brunton lived in Woodend at the time and Dupas shopped in Sunbury. 
I read from one source that the wounds have been identified as similar to those inflicted on Dupas's other victims. However, police say that his alibi actually stood up. But if the way she was killed and the fact Dupas lived and shopped in Sunbury weren't enough to make him a prime suspect, the fact that the nature of this killing would share so many facets with that of his final victim, the first for which he'd be charged and imprisoned for, only supports the contention that this could have been Peter Dupas. At this time, Dupas's wife was working as an assistant at a country special accommodation residence and Dupas started complaining about how much work she had to do at the lodge all the time. She'd finally had enough and told him to piss off and get out of my sight. He quickly apologised but the damage was done and he began to sulk. Within days on January the 3rd 1994, he had burst into a woman's toilet block at Lake Epilock and tried to abduct a woman at knife point. His victim was a bank officer, she was 26, and she was spending the weekend with her fiancé and three friends at a holiday house near the lake. She was cut on the hands as she fought to prevent him raping her, but after but after trying to drag her out of the toilet cubicle, Dupas suddenly let her go and walked away. Her fiancé and friends chased Dupas's station wagon for 15 kilometres before catching him after he lost control on a dirt road and spun off the road. Police who searched the station wagon found a horrifying kill kit of sorts. It had knives, a black balaclava, a roll of tape, a shovel and a sheet of plastic. So he's jailed for three years and nine months with a minimum of two years and nine months for false imprisonment. The possibility of an indefinite sentence under dangerous offences laws is not raised by the prosecution. So once again, here we see light sentencing for a guy who's racking up quite a list of violent offences. Unfortunately, it's often not until the worst isn't just done but proven do monsters like Dupas get locked away indefinitely. And also, unfortunately, it appears as though he'd already possibly taken two lives by this point. But we wouldn't know that until years later. September the 29th, 1996, Dupas is released from jail and he's living in an apartment in Rose Street in Brunswick. Now, on October the 4th, 1997, around about a year later, 40-year-old Margaret Marr's body is found dumped near the Hume Highway at Somerton. Her body was mutilated and left in tall grass and her left breasts have been cut off and put in her mouth. I also read some reports that she was found under a heap of boxes or computer equipment as well. Not that that's particularly important at this point. Now, Ma was a prostitute. Some reports prefixing that with the word street, which I infer to mean that she wasn't a high-end escort, but she was a mother and she was also a drug user. Now, these things unfortunately often go hand in hand and they do contribute to a higher risk lifestyle, but none of that means she or anyone else in that line of work deserve to be murdered, but historically it does pose a greater risk. She was last seen at a pharmacy obtaining methadone, and this was in Broad Meadows near the supermarket there, and she left there around midnight. Her daughter Natasha Ma said that her mother stopped picking up the telephone when it was ringing. She said her mum also had a bruise above her left eye about a week or two before she was killed. When questioned by prosecutor Michelle Williams, Miss Ma said she knew her mother was a prostitute who engaged in a pattern of drug taking. She said her mother would start using tranquilizers in the morning, 
might take amphetamines in the afternoon and then be given methadone by a pharmacy at night. On the night before her body was found, Margaret Ma was in a state of despair and reportedly pissed off that she had no drugs. A month or so later, around November 1997, a woman who'll remain anonymous but we'll call Sally was a single mother in her late 30s with a son and daughter and she wanted to raise a deposit to finally buy her own home. So after chickening out a few times, she finally built up the courage to contact a phone sex business to offer her services. At first it seemed like easy money and over months she trained herself to be non-judgmental when she received these phone calls from the uh, lonely to the loopy. Most of the calls didn't worry her, but there are three callers she couldn't forget. One was a man desperate to talk to an older woman. Sally bumped up her age and instantly became a broad-minded woman in her mid-50s for the caller, who she said had prepaid her agency for a 30-minute call. She still wishes that she'd just hang up. Now, this guy apparently started the call, Do you know what I did to the bitch? He then talked about pressing down on the neck of a woman and cutting around a breast. Sally said he liked blood. You could tell that he liked it. When he spoke of the blood, he breathed differently and sounded excited. Sally told police four years later that as his ramblings became more graphic, her mood changed from revulsion to fear. She said, I was petrified. She hung up, but immediately he rang back and said, don't hang up on me, I know where you live. She said he became increasingly excited as he described in vivid detail stabbing a woman. Sally didn't believe the man was living out a twisted fantasy. He made her seem like a real person, she said. He never said the word knife. He used either the word steel or blade. She also said, I called him a sick prick and hung up. I picked up the receiver and he was still there. I pulled the plug out of the wall and went to see my children. Police would later say the detailed description of stabbing and mutilating a woman mirrored the wounds inflicted on Margaret Ma, whose mutilated body had been discovered in Summerton a short time ago, as we mentioned, Chloe. The wounds were concentrated in the breast area in what would become known as the signature of the Dupas MO. Later police checks identified two calls by Dupas to Sally, both on November 1st. One was at 2.45am and the second was at 5.14pm, less than an hour after the killing of Messina Helvargas, Dupas's next victim. But this wouldn't become known until around four years later when Sally came forward, probably connecting the dots from media reports she'd seen, I guess. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. 
November the 1st, 1997, Mercina Halvargas stabbed to death while visiting her grandmother's grave at Faulkner Cemetery. And this was a common occurrence for the respectful young Greek woman visiting her grandmother's grave. She was 25 years old and by all accounts a very warm, loving and gentle soul with a bright future ahead of her. She was small in stature, weighing only 45 kilograms and standing a mere 155 centimetres tall. You look at the pictures of this woman online, Chloe, and she just had a beautiful face, one that would have undoubtedly lit up any room. She had a really infectious-looking smile. It's very sad. Messina's body was discovered at 4.35am on the 5th of November 1997, three graves from where her grandmother was buried. Messina herself would later be laid to rest in the Cheltenham Memorial Park, where her grieving parents regularly attended her grave. Helvagus was attacked from behind while kneeling to attend to a flower arrangement and that she died from massive injuries, including 87 stab wounds about her knees, neck, with most of the wounds concentrated around her breasts. Her upper clothing had been pulled over her head towards her chest. Messina was engaged to a young man named Angelo Gorgevsky and he raised the alarm about her uh, not showing up at the time they'd agreed to meet the day before. Gorgevsky had spent the previous day on November 1st at work before he finished his shift at Epping Target at about 5.30 and went home. He said he rang Mersina at about 7.30 to see if she wanted to catch up, but he was unable to get a hold of her. The mobile phone he had given her did not even ring, he said, which led him to believe the battery might have been flat. He then feared that the car she'd borrowed from him to visit her grandmother's grave might have broken down and she was stranded somewhere. So he drove to the cemetery along the route he thought she would have taken to look for her and see if she was on the side of the road or something. He also phoned her parents at their home in Mentone, but they'd not seen or heard from her. Mr. Gorgevsky said he also drove to the home of her parents several times that night and again to the cemetery, taking several routes he believed she might have taken. He also contacted police but said none of the officers had been very helpful. Mr. Gorgevsky said that police had advised him not to trespass on the locked cemetery grounds. However, he and his father had been to the cemetery at around 3am, jumped the fence to look for Miss Helvargas. It was very dark, extremely dark, he told the court. He said they found the car in the car park next to the Greek Orthodox section, but Miss Helvargas was nowhere to be found. He recalled walking to the grave and he said he called out her name several times to no avail. Gorgevsky said he ran to the grave of the late grandmother of his fiancée and found her body. I screamed. I couldn't look again, he said. I was petrified. I was horrified. I saw a little bit of blood. I didn't know what happened. She appeared to be sleeping with her head on the side. Dupas wouldn't be connected to Miss Helvargas's murder for many years to come, which would have been agonising at the time for her family and no doubt frustrating for police. But once connected following the murder of Nicole Patterson, the patterns, the MO, the evidence would all start to point to the mutilating monster. Forensic scientist Jade Torpen concluded there were multiple stab-type cuts detected in the clothing of Messina Halvargas. These cuts were similar in profile to the multiple stab-type cuts detected on the clothing of Nicole Patterson. Police had long known that Dupas would establish a beat where he would wait for the opportunity to attack as he had at Rye years earlier, 
but they needed to find if he visited the cemetery for any reason before the murder. Certainly when he was interviewed, he told the police he had never been to the cemetery as he had no relatives or friends buried there, but he lied. Once when driving past the memorial park with one of his friends, he said, my grandfather's buried in the cemetery somewhere. Dupass's grandfather, it transpired, was actually buried at the Faulkner Cemetery, about 100 metres from the Halvargas grave. Dupass lived about a kilometre away himself in Pasco Vale at the time. He also drank at the first and last hotel, which was across the road from the cemetery, and almost certainly he would have driven past the Memorial Park each weekday on his way to work in Thomastown. Frank Cole, an elderly resident of Pasco Vale, claims he saw Dupass leaving the Faulkner Cemetery on the day of the murder. Cole had earlier claimed he shot a dingo he suspected that had killed two-month-old Azaria Chamberlain, who went missing at Ayers Rock Camping Ground on August the 17th, 1980 as well. So I don't know what that says about him. Just a fun, <laughs> maybe not the most reliable witness. Maybe, maybe not. It's a little side fact. Nine witnesses saw Dupass trawling the cemetery on the day of Miss Halvagas's murder and a few reports from women who'd been stalked by a man matching Dupass's description within the cemetery from preceding weeks. We won't detail all of their accounts. You can find them online, but suffice to say there was evidence and witnesses putting him there regularly and as close as 20 minutes to Messina's murder. Dupass's own hairdresser and optometrist even confirmed appointments with him in the days after the attack, where they'd bleached his hair and ordered new glasses for him, a clear move to change his appearance. The optometrist even queried Dupass about a scratch on his cheek, which at the time didn't raise any alarm bells because he'd not been making national headlines by this point. But Dupass said it had happened at work, Later on, we'd discover by workplace injury records from his factory job in Thomastown that these were meticulously kept, which was lucky, but there were no incidents noted to corroborate Dupass's claim. Then we come to December the 31st, 1997, Chloe. The Chief Commissioner today alluded to new information which the Homicide Squad received. They then worked on that information and that led to Peter Dupas being charged over this brutal crime here in Brunswick. 95-year-old great-grandmother Kathleen Downs was living in this nursing home where she was stabbed to death. It was a staff member who found her lying on the floor of her room in a pool of blood. Now, police believe that she was attacked in her bed and the room looked like it had been ransacked, so the belief was at that time that this could have been a burglary gone wrong. But more than two decades on, Dupass has been formally charged with murdering Kathleen. I've spoken to the Office of Public Prosecutions today. They have confirmed they have filed an indictment. Now, what that means is that as opposed to a traditional police charge of murder, this case can go straight to a trial. So Dupass will front the Supreme Court on March 14 for a directions hearing. Kathleen Downs was 95 years old. She was a widow and, as the report said, she'd been found stabbed to death in her room at this uh, Brunswick Lodged Aged Care Facility. She'd been stabbed in the neck three times and her throat had also been cut and this was in the early hours of December 31st, 1997. She was last seen at 12.30. A staff member conducted a routine check and her body was found by another staff member at 6.20am in the morning. The person responsible was likely to have entered the building through a wind-out window after using bolt cutters to sever the chain section of the winding mechanism. 
And the fly screen of the window was cut and a pair of milk crates were apparently stacked up by the alleged killer to allow them to climb through the window. An extensive search of the scene and neighbouring properties and streets failed to yield any weapon that might have been used to kill Mrs Downs and no identifiable fingerprints were found at the scene. Mrs Downs was remembered by family and friends as a dear old lady with a wonderful nature who was considered a matriarch of the nursing home. She had three children, nine grandchildren and nine great-grandchildren. Yeah, that's just horrible. What a horrible way for her tenure to come to an end. The date and location of this murder apparently had some relevance to the alleged perpetrator. It was the one-year anniversary of the inevitable end of Peter Dupas's marriage. When his then-wife had officially ended things, the conversation taking place at the nursing home where she worked. Police later found that Dupas had made unexplained phone calls to Mrs Down's nursing home in the weeks before the murder, and evidence of previous break-in attempts at the same point of entry. Mrs Downs was also stabbed in the neck, as we said, and it was a similar manner to the way Dupas had stabbed his other victims. Once again, though, it's important to point out, Dupas wouldn't be connected to this murder at first, but at a later stage upon apprehension for the murder of his next victim, Nicole Patterson, which would be the first murder that he was actually picked up for, Chloe. Yeah, so that was April 19, 1999. Nicole Patterson was stabbed to death in her Northcote home, the details of which we covered in the introduction. On 22nd of April, 1999, police arrested Dupas at midday at the Excelsior Hotel in Thomastown and charged him with the murder of Patterson later that same day. Telephone records revealed Dupas had made three prior phone calls to Patterson to arrange a counselling session to treat depression and gambling addiction. The first from a public telephone booth approximately six weeks before her murder. Over the course of the next six weeks, Dupas made calls to Patterson in an attempt to establish her vulnerability. Dupas later told police he cancelled his appointment with Patterson after being told by her his problem was something that he was able to work through of his own accord. Some facts pointed out by the judge at trial, Chloe. Now, this is worded from the judge directly to Dupas. Altogether, Miss Patterson received 27 stab wounds. Her breasts were completely cut from her body, probably but not necessarily after death, in a depraved act of contempt. They were never located, and it appears that in a further act of obscenity, they were taken as a kind of trophy. After checking the house to ensure that there was nothing left which might incriminate you, and collecting her handbag and driver's licence, also presumably as trophies, you returned to your home where you resumed your normal daily activities as if nothing had occurred, and with your urge to kill, at least temporarily, sated. At that stage, you must have felt reasonably confident that you were safe from detection, but you'd made two mistakes. First, although you had given the false name of Malcolm and had provided Miss Patterson with a false telephone number, the number was, in fact, that of a student who you had engaged to do labouring work for you. Second, although you appeared to have partially searched the premises, you had not seen Miss Patterson's diary, which was underneath some other items on a couch in the living room. It contained a reference to the appointment and, importantly, the incriminating telephone number. Not surprisingly, when the investigating police members became aware of your possible connection with that number, you quickly came under suspicion. 
you were arrested and a search of your house was conducted, in the course of which important evidence that led to your conviction was found. And obviously these statements were reasonably compelling because the jury retired and found Dupas guilty in under three hours. On the 22nd of August 2000, while sentencing Dupas to life imprisonment without the opportunity for release on parole, Judge Frank Vincent remarked, the prospects of your eventual rehabilitation must be regarded as so close to hopeless that they can be effectively discounted. There is no indication whatsoever that you have experienced any sense of remorse for what you have done, and I doubt that you are capable of any such human response. At a fundamental level, as human beings, you present for us the awful, threatening and unanswerable question, how did you come to be as you are? Dupas appeared in the Supreme Court of Victoria Court of Appeal in August 2001 to appeal his conviction for the murder of Nicole Patterson. His appeal was dismissed. On August 15, 2000, he's convicted of Patterson's murder and sentenced to life with no minimum, as you said, Glow. Now, on October 2, 2002, police alleged that there was a positive DNA match between Dupas and one of Margaret Marr's gloves found near her body in Somerton on October 4, 97, and it was 450,000 times more likely to be from Dupas than from any other person. So he was charged with Mars murder at this point. Now, police, this is around the time, Chloe, I know we've kind of ran through a lot of these victims and potential victims in a bit of a chronological order, but Nicole Patterson, aside from his earlier rape convictions, was his only known murder victim at this point. But police get the idea of what this guy's like and what he's all about based on uh, the murder of Nicole and his past offending. So they decide to establish a task force, which they name Mikado, which investigates Dupas in connection with a large number of unsolved murders, cold cases. Detectives found possible links to Dupas in the cases of Messina Helvargas, who we mentioned before, Kathleen Downs, Helen McMahon, and Margaret Marr. So on August 12th, 2004, he is convicted of Ma's murder and sentenced to life with no minimum. In 2006, an inquest into Messina Halvargas's death before Coroner Graham Johnston heard circumstantial evidence in the case against Dupas in relation to the murder. So not long after this inquest, Chloe, police charged Dupas with the murder of Messina Halvargas. And it's after some corroborating evidence from a former disgraced Melbourne lawyer, Andrew Fraser, revealed that Dupas confessed to the killing of Hal Vargas while they were gardening weeds together in Port Phillip Prison in 2002. Fraser was a cocaine trafficker. Well, I say trafficker, but that wasn't the actual charge. It was something along the lines of knowingly participating in the importation of a large quantity or something like that of cocaine. I think it was five and a half kilos or something like that, Chloe. But he served his time and he got out slightly earlier for agreeing to testify against Dupas. And he's gone on to write a couple of books about his experiences as a high-flying lawyer and his time with Dupas as well. Um, we won't get into the details of that right now, but nevertheless, it's an interesting part of this story, and it kind of ties in with the jailhouse confessions theme that we touched on in last week's episode, where Alan Quinn obtained confessions from Leonard Fraser. So we're going to go into more detail on Andrew Fraser, which is no relation to Leonard, and the confessions he got from Dupas, as well as Alan Quinn 
in our Patreon episode this week. Now, Fraser told police he once found a homemade knife concealed among the weeds at Port Phillip Prison, and he called Dupas over to inspect it, which is when the confession occurred. Fraser said, We regularly used to find stuff hidden in the garden, drugs, weapons, and other stuff. I once found a homemade knife, and I called Dupas over to show him. He took it off me and started handling it, almost caressing it in a sexual way. Dupas then started saying, Mercina, Mercina, over and over with this strange look on his face. I was certainly left in no doubt that Dupas had murdered Mercina Alvargas. He did go on to say that this wasn't some sort of jailhouse confession where somebody has gone in and sat in a cell one night, had a brew with another prisoner and somebody has allegedly said something. It's a lot stronger than that. Dupas and I spoke regularly, just the two of us. This was over months and months that he was talking to me and confiding in me. There was one occasion when another prisoner came up to us where we were guarding and started abusing Dupas. The prisoner was yelling, saying, you killed Messina, you killed Messina. After he had gone, Dupas turned to me and said, how does that guy know what I did? There are some choice words in that sentence that I chose to leave out then too. It's a good choice on your part. Dupas was found guilty and he was given another life sentence for the murder of Messina Halvargas. But this scumbag's time in the spotlight wasn't over yet, Chloe. He appealed this conviction on the basis that the verdict of guilty for the murder of Halvargas was unsafe and unsatisfactory, whatever that means. And in 2009, it was upheld. So this was understandably pretty upsetting for Messina's family, I would think. Now, his lawyers pushed for a further indefinite stay on this, but luckily there was a fairly ballsy judge, Justice Coughlin, and he said, fuck that, or words to that effect, and he ordered a retrial. On the 19th of November 2010, Dupas was again convicted of the murder of Mercina Halvargas after three and a half days of deliberations by the jury. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole again. She wasn't in the wrong place at the wrong time. She was doing the right thing at the right time. It was uh, that inferior coward that was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He, he didn't belong in this world. Bill Havagas said his sister's death should have been avoided. What he did to her and all the other women and families that he's affected since he was a young child, it shouldn't have happened, he said. He shouldn't have been free. He shouldn't have been out and a lot of lives wouldn't have been ruined if they had locked him away a long time ago. As of 2006, Dupas is serving his sentences between two prisons, the Maximum Security Protection Unit of Port Phillip Correctional Centre and HM Prison Barwon in Lara. He's attempted suicide several times while he's been imprisoned and he's been described as a model prisoner when he's in there and a monster when released. He was described as a predator and his crimes seemed to have thought and planning behind them, but when he was caught, he repeatedly always claimed he didn't know why he did it. I think the quote that you said at the start, Sean, was from his first victim that said that he didn't know why he would never hurt anyone, which is such a weird juxtaposition for anyone who rapes, assuming he does it to be in control and to have authority, but yet he is happy to play dumb and give up that sense of control. Mm. I just think the nature of his crimes, the utter contempt and hatred for women, it's just sickening to me. The horror that these women must have endured, not only his murder victims, but those who survived his sexual assaults as well. 
It's very hard to think about, and it's nearly impossible to comprehend. Obviously, we don't have the death penalty here in Australia, and I'm certainly not arguing for or against it, but in countries that do have it, Dupas would undoubtedly have received it for his crimes, I think. And the lives of these women he took, it's just so upsetting, particularly when you look at their photos and you read the stories of their lives. There's a photo online, Chloe, of uh, Mercina as a little girl, and she's standing at the front of the family store with a, a proud young George L. Vargas standing next to her, smiling, a proud father. And in researching that, that really hit me, and that was the point in really tugged at the heartstrings for me, having daughters of my own in researching this. So I'm really glad that this monster's days are done and that justice has been served, but one can't help but think of this as a bit of a learning case from a justice point of view. I suppose it all happened as our, our country was growing in that respect as well, but Dupas, he shouldn't really have been out when he was. It's, it's really as simple as that. And you can see that with those sentences, particularly that second rape sentence, Chloe, that he got there. He got a, a smaller sentence the second time after he'd already been guilty of one rape. So that just, even back then, if you're factoring the times, that doesn't sit right with me. But it is easy to look back with that view, knowing what we know now and, and living in these times. I suppose back then it was just a simpler, more innocent time. Um, but I think the final and best words on the Dupas case comes from Christina Halvargas, Messina's mother, who calmly turned around as Dupas was being led from the court and said to him, rot in hell. And I think it's safe to say that would pretty much sum up all of our collective thoughts towards him. Absolutely. Chloe, wanted to mention some additional listening for some other podcasts to check out. If you're not familiar with the Dupas case, and this is the first one that you've heard, Generation Y podcast, episode 112, they did one on Dupas, and they've got a journalist named Maria Lewis on there. Really interesting insights from her, so that's worth a, a checking out. And our Aussie podcasters, probably the best place to start, really. Uh, Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb, episode 32. That's really good. It's also got a lot of insights from the police perspective. I think it's um, Detective Sergeant, I think it's Jeff Ma is on that one. And that's really interesting to sort of see the process that from, from you know, because he was, he was sort of there for it all, what the police went through at the time of catching him, Nicole Patterson's murder. And also True Crime Island hosted by Cambo, episode seven, that's a corker and you really get the true Aussie vibes from him in that one, so check that out. He also alluded pretty eloquently to the point of the second rape charge where he got that lesser sentence. I think he said something along the lines of um, judge was obviously asleep or he just didn't give a shit on that one, so <laughs> that was a fair point. Um, and that brings us to the end. We do have some five-star reviews this week, um, one new one actually. So this one has a great title. It is from a user called Lisa versus Life and it's called True Blue Quality um, and it reads, really happy to find this high-quality Aussie true crime podcast. Sean and Chloe present their research very professionally. I also enjoy how they share their presentations so warmly and naturally. Um, I don't know if she's listened to the bloop for real yet, but it's, it's not always um, so professional. But wow. thank you so much for taking the time to write a review. We really appreciate it and it really does help us. Um, so that was a heavy case. Mm. Let's move into happy thoughts. Yeah. Do you want to go first? Yeah, I'll go first. It was, it was heavy though. I think back to back. Serial killers was tough. Very heavy on the on the rape and murder and 
weird true crimes like that. Yeah, it is, <laughs> isn't it? There's few, fewer zingers in this one. I didn't feel like, I, I feel like I hated this guy more. Mm. I almost didn't want to make make fun of him because of that. Mm. I don't know. Normally I like to poke fun at the guys, but I don't know. He didn't even deserve that He time. didn't even deserve that. Pugsley. Yeah. All right, my happy thought. So I've got a I've actually been a little under the weather this week, so it's been a tough week. Um, we're recording a couple of nights later than we normally do. Um, but earlier in the week it was really good. I got to see my uh, my wife's cousin from Holland come over and she's uh, she's gonna be staying here for an extended period and hadn't seen her for a few years. So it was very nice to see Kira and, uh, yeah, we'll be seeing plenty more of her. So that's the happy thought for the week from me. Cool. Um, my happy thought is that I'm going to a gluten-free brewery on the weekend. Um, I would have gone to it by the time this episode goes live and I'm so excited about it. I can't have gluten and I miss beer so much. Um, and one of the legends that I work with found it and I'm heading out there with his family and my husband and um, I – just can't wait to taste beer again. It's like if, imagine, and it's another thing, not being able to have Vegemite. It's just those flavours you can't get it anywhere else. Yeah. There's nothing else that tastes like it um, and it's not worth the pain that it causes me if I had it. Um, so that's my happy thought. Awesome. Uh, well, I'm just being such a great great friend to you sitting here drinking a beer. And <laughs> I did buy you the beer. So. That's true, yeah. <laughs> I delivered it. Yes. Um, so if you have any story suggestions, feedback or questions, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com or you can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue True Crime dash podcast or find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you're having trouble finding us on Patreon, there is a link for it in our Facebook group in the show notes for each episode, or we can email it to you if you'd prefer, um, just get in touch via Gmail. It looks like it isn't showing up for some people when you search the show name, um, but if you do Google True Blue True Crime Patreon, it does come up. Yeah. So you'll find us one way or another with a little bit of searching. As far as uh, Peter Dupas goes, that's it for us today, Chloe. We're going to jump straight into our Patreon episode now, which, as we mentioned before, is about jailhouse confessions. So we'll get on to that and we will see all of you. Well, we won't see you. You'll hear us. Talk at you. Yeah, we'll talk at you uh, next week on another episode of True Blue True Crime. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.